We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the ninth chapter, the book of Hebrews and the ninth chapter, as we continue in our series through the book of Hebrews. And I will be reading and then preaching this morning on Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. That's verses 11 through 14 of Hebrews 9. And I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here the writer states, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for bringing us here in your kind providence to hear your word proclaimed. And we would ask now for the work and ministry of the powerful Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and teacher today, that he would reveal to us the meaning of these passages and help us to apply them to our own lives in such a way that you are glorified and Jesus Christ is honored in our midst for we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Brethren, as we saw last Sunday, even the Old Covenant, with all of its weaknesses and limitations, had a provision for worship and for ministry, where it was not left up to the priests to decide how they were to address their own sins and the sins of the people. But rather, God himself gave very clear instructions on how worship was to be ordered and who was to represent the people before God. For as we noted when we considered verses 1 through 10 of this ninth chapter, God instructed his people under the old covenant to construct an earthly tent or a tabernacle, which was to serve not only as God's sanctuary among them, but as an object to remind them of God's holiness and their continual need for mercy. For as you'll remember, the design of this earthly tent with its two sections, the holy place and the most holy place, were intended to remind God's people that they were not holy and that it was only by God's mercy that anyone was able to approach God at all. In fact, so much of this earthly tent or tabernacle was designed to deny the people access to God and to teach them their need to seek God's mercy in God's appointed way. And of course, as I stated last week, even the furnishings of this earthly tent, this tabernacle, spoke to the fact that this mercy could only be mediated through the future work 
of Jesus Christ. For everything that was displayed in God's earthly tent and everything that was conducted there by the priests and especially by the high priest pointed in some way to the person and the priestly work of Jesus Christ. And yet while God's earthly tent was a forward-looking witness to Christ, everything that transpired in that tent in terms of ministry was not of lasting spiritual value. For the sacrifices that were continually offered there could not make those who drew near perfect. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. And all who worshiped there were not assured of a clear conscience before God. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 9. In fact, these blessings would not come until the introduction or the inauguration of the new covenant under Jesus Christ. And so while worship and ministry within God's earthly tent served the specific purpose that God had intended for it, it was still inadequate, it was still insufficient when compared to what would come with Jesus Christ under the sufficiency and the glory of the new covenant. For not only would Christ come as a greater and better high priest, which was already established according to the writer in earlier chapters of this book, but Christ would also enter and minister within God's greater and more perfect tent. And brethren, that's what we're going to consider this morning together, God's greater and more perfect tent, the worship that transpired there, the service that transpired there, and Christ's service as our great mediator for that tent was not a mere copy of the original as was the earthly tabernacle but it is a heavenly tent not made with hands in which Christ now appears before the presence of God according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24 which we'll consider in detail in a few weeks in fact it is Christ's ministry Within this greater and more perfect tent, this heavenly tabernacle of God, that the writer to the Hebrews now focuses our attention on, beginning here in verse 11 and 12 of Hebrews chapter 9. For in speaking of the superior high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, over that of the earthly old covenant high priest, the writer says the following. Notice here beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, and note that expression of the good things to come, Christ brings good things as he comes as mediator. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and bulls or by means of the old covenant sacrificial system, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And of course, from these 
two verses of Scripture, we might ask three very important follow-up questions. Three questions come to mind after reading these two verses. Number one, when did Christ enter into this greater and more perfect tent? Question number two, with what did he appear? Or in other words, what did he bring with him into this tent to atone for sin? To reconcile God and men. And then thirdly, for what purpose did he perform his work and his ministry? And with respect to this first question, I would suggest to you that Christ entered into this greater and more perfect tent after his death and resurrection and upon his glorious ascension to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. For we are told in Hebrews 9.24 that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself into heaven itself, now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. And I know we haven't reached verse 24 yet, but we need to understand where the writer is going. Christ has entered into heaven where this greater and more perfect ten is. He is now within the very presence of God. He is now there on our behalf. And thus, one way that Christ's ministry is now superior to the ministry of the high priests under the old covenant is that Christ's ministry isn't limited to this earth as the old covenant ministry was. But it originated in heaven first. And it extends now throughout heaven since Christ is seated there in the place of majesty and honor there alongside the presence of his father. For the earthly ministry of the priests of the old covenant performed was restricted in a profound sense to the boundaries and the limitations of the earthly tent that God had provided for them. However, by virtue now of his heavenly station where Jesus Christ is, Jesus Christ is not only present in heaven to represent us as our advocate before God, but he is also there in heaven to ensure that we, as his spiritual seed, receive those good things that he is constantly interceding for. Do you follow the argument of the writer Christ not only came to bring good things, but Christ is now in heaven himself to dispense, to distribute, to hand out, as it were, those good things which he has brought. For one of Christ's great joy in interceding for us is the knowledge that his soul's travail, his sacrificial death was not in vain. One thing that brings our Savior great joy now in heaven is knowing that those who were given to him by God the Father shall be his, shall be Christ's eternal reward. 
We are the reward that Jesus Christ received for his soul's travail. We are the gift from God the Father to Jesus Christ for his obedience. Imagine that. It's difficult to fathom that we could be that, and yet that's what we are. And he delights in interceding for us. He delights in dispensing and distributing to us all the good things he came to provide. He has great joy in giving us what he has purchased. The prophet Isaiah declared in Isaiah 53 in verses 10 and 11 these words, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. What amazing language. Out of the anguish of our Lord's soul, he sees. He sees what? He sees his promised seed. He sees his reward given to him by the Father in the form of you and I. And as he sees us, he is satisfied. Satisfied. For the saving work that Christ performed in that greater and more perfect tent exceeded any earthbound offering done under the old covenant. Therefore, brethren, as we consider and contemplate where Jesus as our great high priest has ascended to or where Jesus is now seated and ministering, let us not envision Christ within a tent right now that is sewn together by human hands. Let's not bring him down by thinking in such ways. Nor should we envision him as our ascended Lord, now occupying a earthly place that was created for him, like an earthly tabernacle or a temple of old. But rather, Jesus Christ is now abiding in the very presence of the Father, in a greater and more perfect tent, a place where there are no copies but only what is real and what is spiritual and eternal. In fact, if we think about this passage very carefully, all that you and I experience in this life is only temporary. This is not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is in heaven. The ultimate reality is where Jesus Christ now abides that is what is real and spiritual and eternal. And that is where Jesus, as our high priest, not only dwells, but continues to minister to us today. He is still ministering to us today. He is dispensing, distributing grace, grace for his people. Then secondly, with regard to this Second question, with what did he appear? Let us notice that the writer assures us here in verse 12 that Christ has entered once and for all. And again, these words emphasize what Christ did as he entered and that this work was lasting and permanent. He entered into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats, not by means of the blood of calves, but by means of his own 
blood. And why it is significant here that Christ enters into this greater and more perfect tent, bringing blood that is not from goats and calves, is significant for two reasons. First, it's significant because it reveals that Christ, as our high priest, has brought us something different than what the priests under the old covenant brought. Because his priestly offering was profoundly different and superior. In fact, Christ brought a new and infinitely much more powerful offering altogether. Christ did not enter into this tent to simply offer more of the same kind of sacrifices that were repeatedly offered in the past. For if that had been the case, Christ's ministry would have been different in name only. But rather, when Christ entered into this greater and more perfect tent, he made a separation from what had been done before. Yes, he followed the same pattern of worship. Yes, he rendered an offering, but it was different. It was separate. It was superior. It was completely and totally unique as a gift that only he could offer. Then secondly, it's significant because not by bringing the blood and goats of calves, Jesus was clearly making a statement about the inability of the blood of goats and calves to take away the sins of the people. For if that blood had been effective, the priestly ministry of Jesus would have been unnecessary. And had Jesus simply been yet another priest like the ones who had gone before him, he would have surely brought the, the same kind of blood with him that they brought. And yet it is clear, even before Jesus entered this heavenly tent, that the blood of goats and bulls could not take away the sins of the people. For the blood of mere animals could not appease the wrath of God against human sin and human rebellion. And so what Jesus did in light of the demands of divine justice is he came by means of and through the presentation of his own blood, his own spotless and perfect blood. And why was Christ's sacrificial blood both efficient and sufficient where the blood of goats and bulls was not. Well, brethren, it was efficient. It was sufficient because Christ shared in our spilt blood. He was of the same blood in the sense that we were in his humanity. And so the offering of his blood could be substituted for ours, which should have been shed. And yet even more importantly, his blood, though it was human, was absolutely untainted by sin. In fact, the writer of Hebrews does not elaborate very much on this here in Hebrews chapter 9 on this central theme. But you'll recall from our series in 1 Peter that Peter does elaborate on this fact of this blood. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 refers to Christ's blood as that precious blood 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, for surely it has that power. Surely it has more than any other powerful means. We should never fail to appeal to it. And so by bringing his own blood into this better and more perfect tent, Jesus was not only setting aside the sacrifices of the past. Think about that. Not only was he breaking stride with what was done before. Not only was he using a different type and means of sacrifice. But he was offering that which could most surely provide forgiveness. That which would most surely fulfill the requirements of divine justice. And of course, these observations about the blood of Christ lead us to the third question that I posed earlier. And that is, for what purpose did Jesus perform his work and ministry? And notice that we, we find the answer to this important question here at the end of verse 12. For we are told here that Christ in entering into this tent did all these things, thus securing something. Securing something. I want you to think about that word securing. It means more than just accomplishing. It means grasping something, laying hold of something, securing something with absolute certainty. What he grasped, what he secured, what he held on for us with absolute certainty was our eternal redemption. And once again, we see here the contrast that exists between the work of the high priest under the old covenant and the work of Christ in establishing the new. For the work of the Levitical priest was only temporary. It, it pointed to a redemption that was hoped for, but not yet a settled reality. And yet by entering into this heavenly tent and offering up his own blood instead, Christ ensured that what was only temporary was now fulfilled. He ensured that what was once uncertain was now something that we can be certain of. For all who are the beneficiaries of Christ's priestly work are now assured of a redemption that is secure and eternal. A redemption that rests on the perfection of what Jesus Christ has done well, brethren, how comforting these words are. Our redemption is not resting upon what we do, but it rests upon the perfection of what Jesus Christ has already done. And therefore, from the perspective of Christ's heavenly ministry, his ministry in God's better and more perfect tent, we have a high priest who has done all things well exceedingly well, perfectly. We can delight in the ministry that he continues to do because he continues to minister to us based upon this work that we've been contemplating. And yet, what are the practical effects 
of these truths upon our lives today. We understand the theological significance of what Jesus did. We understand the theological differences between the old covenant sacrifices and Christ's once for all new covenant sacrifice, if I can call it that. What are the blessings that you and I enjoy in far greater measure today because of Christ's offering of his own blood? What did his blood purchase for us? Well, let us notice here in verses 13 and 14, the final contrast in our text. This whole passage, this whole section is full of contrasts. Contrasts are a good way of teaching. This final contrast is a contrast between what the offerings of the old covenant provided for the people then and what Christ's offering provides for us now. For the writer to the Hebrews asked the question here in verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For once again, the writer is pointing our attention to a powerful contrast between what was and what now is much more. What exactly is being presented here in our text as a practical benefit of the new covenant over against the old covenant? Well, the writer begins by reminding us here in verse 13, notice this, that the ceremonies of the old covenant and what God required of the people in preparation of those ceremonies had provided a process or a means of purification for the flesh. Notice those words, for the flesh. In other words, the Old Testament system, the old covenant system, provided a means to deal with the external sin the tainting of the lives of the people because of the wickedness and sinfulness of the flesh. For through the constant shedding of the blood of goats and bulls, through the purifying of defiled persons through the ashes of a heifer, God's people were constantly being forced to separate themselves externally from the presence of unholiness and open sin. And this was a good thing, generally speaking. For an outward external holiness is far better than no form of holiness or sanctification at all. Far better. But was it entirely sufficient? Did it really remove the root of the problem? Whatever outward or external holiness that existed under the old covenant and its sacrificial practices could not by any means compare with the genuine, authentic, inward spirituality that has been created in every believer today through the blood of Christ and the work of the eternal spirit, which are both mentioned here by the writer in verse 14. 
For when the benefits of Christ's blood and the power of the eternal spirit are applied to the believer today in a way that never could have been applied to people under the old covenant, there are spiritual fruits there are spiritual effects that are produced within our lives that are obvious and transformative and undeniable. Absolutely undeniable. What are these fruits? Well, notice that the writer mentions here first in verse 14 that one of these great spiritual benefits is a purified or a cleared conscience. Purified from dead works. For when you and I believe that Christ's great high priestly work has been accomplished for our redemption, and we are no longer trusting in our works to justify us, there is a spiritual transformation that transpires within us that not only purifies our minds, but clears our troubled and guilt-ridden consciences for when the spirit of God is at work in us we are freed from that haunting guilt that kept us enslaved and tormented for so long for by believing in the efficiency and sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for our sin our restless minds and our consciences are at peace and we have true spiritual peace at long last and I ask all of us this morning is this something that we now possess is this something that you now possess a purified conscience a purified conscience a conscience that is no longer resting on no longer appealing to dead works in a vain effort to please or to appease God. For our own works are incapable of producing spiritual life within us. No, only the Holy Spirit can produce true spiritual life in us. Nor is God in any sense impressed with our works outside of Christ. And so if we are thinking this morning that we can drive away our doubts if we're thinking this morning that we can remove that guilt that so often affects us and afflicts us apart from trusting in Christ we are dreadfully mistaken we are dreadfully mistaken God will not give us a peaceful and settled conscience until we come to Christ until we rest solely and entirely in him. Do you have a troubled conscience this morning? Is your conscience condemning you? Is your conscience seeming to convince you of your sinfulness and of the fact that you stand condemned before a holy God and possessing no hope outside of Jesus Christ? If conscience is speaking, listen to it. May it be a means of awakening you to your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And may the Spirit of God open your eyes and help you to see that you need a conscience 
that's been purified by him, that's been cleansed and cleared so you're no longer living under constant condemnation and guilt. Then lastly, the writer mentions here at the end of verse 14, another spiritual fruit made possible by the blood of Christ and by the work of the eternal spirit, and that is the will or the desire to serve the living God. Notice that. Not only a purified conscience, but the will and the desire to serve the living God. For once we are made alive unto God, we cannot help but offer ourselves to God. Has that not been the case with you? That as soon as God cleansed your conscience, as soon as he gave you spiritual life, your first living response was a desire to serve him, to please him, to honor him. We cannot help but respond that way because of the work of the Spirit. This is a clear sign of God's saving work under the new covenant. The new covenant produces this kind of work in God's people. For when the grace of God appears in our lives, it changes us, gives us new desires, a new direction, a new desire for holiness, gives us a desire to want to honor God in an evil and difficult world. For the Apostle Paul declared in Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14, these words. Let me read them to you. Just listen to them very carefully. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. Now that is an interesting statement. The grace of God has appeared. That is a clear marker, sign of the new covenant in force. The grace of God has appeared. That's a distinctive sign of the new covenant and its force. Bringing salvation to all people, not just the Jews, to all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What transformation the new covenant brings to God's people. Not only living holy lives, but waiting for our blessed hope. What is that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Notice how it's related to our redemption. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. There's that word purity again. To purify for himself a people for his own possession a people who are zealous for good works. Where does the zeal come from? From the inward work of the Spirit. From the fact that we now have a clear conscience. We have new affections for God. We have new desires to serve Him. We have new power dwelling within us through the Holy Spirit. Now we have, along with that, new zeal. Excitement, motivation to serve the living God. For if we truly belong to Christ, we will produce good works. Notice that. Good works will follow. Note the contrast again. Purify our conscience from what kind of works? 
from dead works, lifeless works, inadequate works. Now, through the work of the Spirit, he produces within us good works, not dead works, good works to the glory of God through the Spirit. This is the second practical benefit of God's working in us. Brethren, let me just say this on the authority of God's word today. If you don't have what we've just described in terms of these new desires and these new inclinations to serve God as a result of coming to Jesus Christ, then you need to ask yourself why. Because these are benefits to us from Christ's work and they're also clear signs that we've experienced the grace of God under the new covenant. Therefore, beloved, in conclusion, let us recognize this morning that what you and I enjoy in terms of a clear conscience and a desire to serve God are the results of Christ's ministry in God's greater and more perfect tent. Why do we have these things? Why do we enjoy these benefits? Why can we rejoice in them today? Because of what Christ did in entering into that greater and more perfect tent. What he accomplished there for us. Had Christ not ministered for us in the way that he has and in the way that he still does, we would not know these spiritual blessings at all. And yet now we do. Now we possess them. Now they are ours. Now they are evident. Now they are at work. Now I trust God is using them in our witness. So let us be sincerely grateful for what Christ has done in God's greater and more perfect tent in heaven. Oh, what great work he has accomplished for us. May our appreciation be demonstrated in the ways that we worship and in the ways that we serve our great Redeemer. To God be all the glory for great things he has not only done past tense, but great things he continues to do. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the help of your spirit this morning. We pray now. That you would take what has been communicated today through this preacher's babbling and conversation and preaching and apply it through your Holy Spirit to our hearts. That Jesus Christ might be glorified. That your work in us might continue on. That souls might hear the word of God and be brought to spiritual life today. And so that we as a church may grow in grace and in our understanding of what God would have us to be. For we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.